0: Well, good morning, Red Mountain Church. It really is good for us to be here. This is actually the first Sunday this month that we have made it to gathered worship. Uh, we had RUF training in Denver at the beginning of this month and brought home a wicked sickness that just took forever for it to work its way through our whole family. So everybody got it. We're all better now. And I hope that our immune systems are like the Hulk, just... Strong, angry, aggressive, ready to just fight off anything that comes at us. But I did want to begin just by saying, I don't know how long I'll feel the need to keep doing this, but I think I did it back in September when I preached. But Anna and I continue to be so thankful for you as a church in so many ways, for your prayer and partnership with RUF at UAB, what we're doing there, um, for your love and care for our family as we have walked through It's the hardest year of our lives together so far. If you don't know what happened, um, when my wife gave birth to our fourth child this summer, she just experienced some pretty serious life-threatening complications, had several surgeries, Um, but she just got checked out a couple weeks ago and everything's looking good. So we are so, so thankful to be where we are now. Um, But seriously, just from the bottom of our hearts, we are so thankful for this church and for the ways that you all have loved us so well. I mean, we haven't even been, we hadn't been when Jack was born, in Birmingham for quite a year yet and we'd only been at Red Mountain consistently for six months Um, but you guys have been such a beautiful demonstration of God's goodness to us as a family and for that we're just incredibly thankful so thank you. Uh, This morning I wanted to think with you all about something that I can't get off my mind doing college ministry at UAB with RUF and before I mention what that is I also just wanted to say that I've My family and I are loving this season of ministry. Uh, We love our students. We've got a handful of them here this morning, so I hated them later. And we just found out that we're going to be getting an intern next fall, so we are super pumped about that. Amy and I are excited about about having an addition to the team. Uh, But I continue to learn that ministry among college students at UAB has some incredible opportunities, but also some real challenges. And I'm so glad that RUF called me about being the RUF pastor at a secular campus. Because I went to a secular university. I remember all the challenges and temptations that I faced as a college student. I'm just so glad to be in a position to shepherd students through similar difficulties. But the thing that I can't get off my mind since starting with RUF a year and a half ago is this. Questions like, given our cultural moment... What does having a winsome witness to the gospel of Jesus look like? Should the rapid changes that we've seen in our culture impact the way that we do evangelism? And if so, how? Another way to ask it is, what does it look like to avoid compromise, but to also be relationally sensitive and wise as we carry the gospel into conversations and relationships that we have with non-Christians? So these are questions that I'm constantly wrestling with and thinking about as I talk with our students, hear about the challenges they're facing, the questions they have, things they're wrestling through, and as Amy and I seek to disciple and invest in their growth into greater Christ-likeness, even as we seek to do the same ourselves. So in just a minute, we'll look at Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6, which is about how we live before the world which is watching us, often much more closely than we realize. And before we actually read through that passage, let's take a look at the flow of what Paul has been doing since chapter 3. So you can open up to chapter 3 if you have your Bibles. But Paul is seeking to show what the new life that's available in Christ looks like as it begins transforming human hearts and human relationships in the home and in the church. And then the section we'll look at is about our posture, toward the non-Christian world around us. But in Colossians 3, the first verse, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then in verse 5, Paul talks about putting to death what is earthly and sinful in us. Verse 12, Put on then put on these Christ-like qualities so there's two sides of the same coin, putting to death what's sinful in us, putting on Jesus. And then in verse 18, Paul begins addressing different groups within the church. Wives, husbands, fathers, children, masters, and servants. And Paul wants us to see how massive and how pervasive of a change the gospel makes in the lives of sinners like us. And it's meant to astound us. And in Colossians 4, 2-6, through 6, Paul makes this shift to consider the church in relationship to the outside world and how we're called to move toward the non-believers that God has placed around us. There's this call for movement, to take the initiative and step toward those who desperately need Jesus and don't even know it. And the Lord calls us to develop friendships with non-Christians as we Learn to be a friend of sinners just like our Savior. But astonishment leads us into movement. I think the only way we will ever sustain any movement toward our non-Christian friends and family members, coworkers, neighbors, is going to be if we can sustain in our own hearts our astonishment at the gospel by continually looking at Jesus and all that he's done for us. Guilt is never going to be a lasting motivator for us in moving toward outsiders. Only grace, only astonishment at what Jesus has done has the power to sustain us with joy in our evangelism. So a couple other comments before we read the passage. First, just what is evangelism? What are we talking about? I think we're talking about the verbal sharing of the good news of what Christ has done for sinners and summoning people to respond to that message by turning away from their sins, trusting in Christ alone to be made right with God, and then treasuring him above all else. Turning, trusting, and treasuring. And the gospel, you could say, is like sunscreen. Its benefits aren't automatic. You have to apply it to yourself to experience its blessings and so we call people to respond to the gospel with trust in Jesus. You know, but also why should we evangelize and why is it so hard? And I think one way, one way to answer that is to say that there's a reluctance to do this because of the culture cultural air that we are all breathing. Scripture is clear that without faith in the Jesus revealed to us in scripture We are all destined for eternal separation from God and all of his goodness because of our rebellion against him. But we evangelize, we seek to share the gospel with others in hopes that they will come to trust in Christ alone, to have their sins forgiven, and to be brought back into fellowship with God. We want to see others come to Jesus because we know of their desperate condition without him. Because we were there. But even knowing all of this, evangelism still feels weird and pushy to us. I think given the cultural atmosphere we're in, it feels even wrong to try to persuade and convince someone that your way of seeing things is true and theirs is off somehow. And none of us enjoy feeling that way. But I think we're being conditioned in our atmosphere of religious pluralism to feel this way. And it's just helpful to be aware of it, to know that, so that we can grow and respond to it with wisdom. So with that being said, let's look at Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6, our passage for this morning. This is God's Word. It says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word, for the ways that it comforts us, the ways that it challenges us. It does so much to us and in us. And Lord, we pray that as we look at Colossians 4 this morning, this short little passage, that you would bless our hearts with fresh astonishment at the grace we've been shown in Jesus. And Lord, we pray that that astonishment is what would excite us to be able to Share the gospel with those around us. And we need wisdom to know how to do this. So please help us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I think here in this passage, what we're being given, these aren't the only ingredients, but I think we're being given two big ingredients to having a winsome witness in the world. And those two things are, number one, prayer. I think we see that in verses 2 through 4. And secondly, Persuasion verses four through six. But prayer is speaking to God about people and persuasion is speaking to people about God. So these are two things we'll walk through. First prayer, speaking to God about people. You know, when it comes to how we engage the unbelieving world around us, I think we should all be so encouraged by where Paul begins here. He begins with prayer. Prayer which is an expression of our love for Jesus and our reliance upon him. Before he gets into our responsibility to move toward the non-Christians around us in love and grace, he wants to make sure that we understand our own powerlessness and the posture that we ought to have as we lean into conversations and relationships with people. But first, our powerlessness. So prayer at its heart is an expression of our longing for more of Jesus and our acknowledgement that we desperately need his help. Jesus said in John 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. And we wholeheartedly confess that when we pray, asking God for his help in all that we do. And the combination here in verse 2 of the word prayer and then the phrase being watchful, this combination is reminiscent of the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus pleaded with his disciples to keep watch and to pray. So I think this is a call for us to recognize and to be mindful of our own areas of weakness and where we most especially need courage and help from above for our fragile hearts. And of course, in prayer, we also acknowledge our powerlessness to change anyone's heart. From the human side of things, success in evangelism is in the sharing, not in the saving. We seek to do what we can to get the gospel into the lives of others, but we have no power to bring about change in someone else's heart. Only the Lord can do that. And he's pleased to answer our prayers toward that end as we bring our loved ones and friends before the Lord who don't know him. In God's heart, even more than our own, breaks over the resistance toward the gospel that we see in those we love so much and long to see come to place their faith in Christ. So prayer is about powerlessness, but I think it's also about our posture. It's about stepping into an ever-increasing reliance upon God's grace and His power. It's about this ever-deepening acknowledgement of our own frailty and neediness. And it's about an ever-growing love for the lost as we bring our hearts before the Lord to be made more and more like His. As we remember who we would be apart from Christ, and as we discover more and more of all that we have in Him, our hearts grow in compassion for those who are estranged from God because of their sin, just like we were. And this humble posture is gradually produced within us as we bathe our hearts in the warm waters of gospel grace. And this posture influences how we interact with others. But if you, like me, need a good reminder that prayer is ultimately a gift of grace given to us to grow in love for the Lord and to enjoy our relationship with Him, and if you, like me, often feel discouraged about the lack of passion in your prayer life, I wanted to share these two quotes that I hope will encourage your hearts as much as they have my own. So this first one is from Jason Halopoulos. He's the senior pastor of the church that Kevin DeYoung used to be at in Michigan. But he says, If we knew what we accomplish for the sake of the kingdom when we are on our knees, we would be tempted never to rise. I love that because I'm constantly tempted to think that my prayers don't do that much. That God's going to do what he's going to do anyway. But I love this because it reminds me of the power that we have when we are on our knees confessing our powerlessness. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, God's power meets our weakness and does incredible things with it. And second quote is from Tim Keller. He says, Prayer turns theology into experience. This is another one that I find myself thinking about a lot. There exists in all of us this disconnect between the truths we know in our heads about God and our daily experience of those truths. And prayer is meant to bridge that gap between our heads and our hearts. As we pray over scripture and bring all of our mess into the Lord's gracious presence the truths we know in our heads slowly begin soaking into our hearts. This takes time. That's why we have to continually keep coming back to Jesus over and over and over again. So before we move on to the second point, persuasion, remember this, that Paul begins this section about how we engage with the world around us by talking to us about prayer and its massive importance. Our efforts at evangelism, our growth in godliness and every other aspect of our Christian lives will be hindered without a growing reliance upon Jesus and his grace. And Paul wants to make sure that we get that deep down into our hearts before we even begin to wrestle with our responsibilities toward the world around us. So that's the first point, prayer. And second is persuasion, speaking to people about God. So it's out of this position of grace that we know that we've received in the gospel that we then move toward people seeking to persuade them of the truth of God's word. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. He says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. It's because we have found this incredible treasure in Jesus that we want to share it with other people as we try to persuade others and and steer conversations toward the gospel as our relationships develop with them, we want to make the gospel both clear, verse 4, Paul mentions that, that he wants to speak clearly. So he wants to make the gospel both clear and compelling, verses 5 and 6. Or another way to say it is he wants to make it both accessible and attractive. So I think in our evangelism, In our cultural context, we need an approach that is more invitational than confrontational. I tell our students all the time that relationships are like bridges. A bridge, if it is well built, nice and sturdy, you can send some heavy cargo across that bridge. But if a bridge is not well built, if it's weak and wobbly and you try to send a heavy load across it, then there's the risk of collapse. And it's the same with our relationships with non-Christians. We want to grow good, deep relationships with unbelievers. Some categories that I often think through, you may have heard these before, but just the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of the gospel, I found these really helpful. I think that those of us who care a lot about doctrinal precision and faithfulness, which I would put the entire PCA in that category, that is a wonderful thing, to care about getting truth right But I think we can perhaps unintentionally downplay or not emphasize as much the gospel's beauty and goodness when we're focused on truth. And I'm not trying to suggest that we overcorrect, downplay the truth. But I am constantly thinking in these categories with students having conversations. And I've seen how ugly that we can sometimes make the truth look when we neglect showing people that it's also beautiful and good. For example, uh, the fact that we can only find salvation in Jesus, which Scripture makes clear, John 14:6, Acts 4:12), that Christianity claims to have the one true way for sinners to be brought back into fellowship with God. That sounds really offensive and narrow-minded in light of the cultural air that we are all breathing. Our students in RUF, like all of us, they feel the immensity of these cultural pressures pushing on them They feel like they're being mean to other students by claiming that Jesus is the only way for sinners to be made right with God. And claiming that it's true, merely claiming that it's true, doesn't make it any easier of a pill to swallow. So I think we have to think carefully about how to share hard truths with people in a way that also highlights the goodness and the beauty as well. While recognizing that we're never going to be, we're never seeking to remove the offense of the gospel. There is the offense of the gospel that is always there. Because it's God coming to confront us in our sinfulness. Telling us how needy we are. But I think inviting people to try on Christianity. And to see even the hard truths through a thoroughly Christian lens. To really try to put themselves there. Can be much more winsome. So helping people understand all that the Bible says about our sin problem and that we don't deserve for there to be any way for us to come back into fellowship with God I think can help us highlight the goodness and the beauty that there is even a way for us to come back. I've also learned in conversations with students that sometimes simply asking good, thought-provoking questions can get people thinking in new categories. For example, to the student who's struggling with why Jesus is the only place we can be made right with God, the only one who can do that for us. Uh, just asking them, you know, if it really was true, though, that Jesus is the only way, don't you think it would actually be incredibly kind, not mean, for people to want to let us know that? I think sometimes a, a thoughtful question like that can get them thinking in a different way than they have before. Earlier this month the REF training, the one I brought home the wonderful sickness from. Uh, there was a campus minister, John Meinen, who taught one of my sessions, and he said this. I thought this was really helpful. He said, most people aren't outsiders to the Christian faith because of unanswered questions. Most people are outsiders because of unquestioned answers to life's biggest questions. So many people around us have unconsciously, absorb the world's answers to the big questions of life, and they've never seriously questioned them. So that's what we're inviting people to consider in evangelism. We're inviting them to hold up Christianity's answers to the big questions of life alongside the answers that secularism has given them, or whatever the worldview is. And we're asking them to compare them, to see which answers are more satisfying and which ones fit better with human experience in this world. Blaise Pascal, he was a French Christian, he says this. He says, make Christianity attractive. Make good men wish that it were true and then show them that it is. So Pascal here is encouraging us to lead with the goodness and the beauty of Christianity and then to show people that it's not only good and beautiful, but it's indeed true. Another way to say this is that we have to capture the imagination of people before we convince the intellect. And now, of course, some people do have intellectual questions and objections to Christianity, and that's the barrier for them, and that needs to be tackled and worked through together. But I love what Pascal is saying because I do think a lot of people around us just don't find Christianity to be very relevant or attractive there's no appeal to it they need to be shown the depth of Jesus' beauty and the immensity of his goodness we need to show them a compelling and arresting vision of who Jesus is and all his glorious fullness so this is where i constantly find myself in college ministry Not trying to make everything sound wonderful and palatable as if there are no tough pills to swallow when it comes to becoming a Christian. But at the very same time, like our text says, we're called to make the best use of the time. I think we must know the times in which we live and do life with people. And this knowledge of our atmosphere shapes the way that we approach people and seek to spread the gospel in a post-Christian world. And by post-Christian, I just mean that our culture has been deeply influenced by Christianity. But verse 6 says that our speech should always be gracious and seasoned with salt. Now, salt was used for several different things in the ancient world. But the emphasis here is most likely that salt makes things taste better. Throw some salt on some good old fries. Delicious. It's used to bring out more flavor in a good meal. G.K. Beale, who wrote a great commentary on the book of Colossians, he says this, Just as food seasoned with salt has a good, tasteful effect, so should the Colossians' word of witness be attractive to unbelievers' spiritual appetites. So again, I think there's tremendous wisdom in understanding where we are in our cultural moment, how we're all shaped by it. And how we can persuasively engage with non-Christians as we grow in relationship with them. So our point about prayer, I mentioned two quotes. And with this point on persuasion, I've got two books to recommend. (laughs) No pressure to go get these. I'm a reader. But if you're interested, I have found these two books just really helpful in thinking through some of these questions. The first one is Telling a Better Story by Josh Chitreau. Uh, The subtitle of the book is How to Speak About God in a Skeptical Age. It's really helpful. I think the author is wrestling with what it looks like to share the gospel in the 21st century in a way that's winsome and does justice to Paul's instructions here in Colossians 4. I found this book to be pastorally and relationally sensitive, uh, biblically faithful, and a great resource to think through just what this is supposed to look like, given our context The second book is The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. This is another great resource. And what Glenn is doing in this book is showing just how profoundly those of us in the West have been influenced by Christianity. Whether we are Christians or not, our moral vision has been shaped powerfully by Christianity. Even if we've started as a culture to try to wipe away that Christian influence. And as he points out in the book, there's a growing number of non-Christian writers who have pointed out the massive impact that the Jesus Revolution has made on us as a society. And this deep influence of Christianity on our culture actually provides us with some really helpful ways to engage with other people. So rather than leading with confrontation and pointing out what non-Christians have wrong, which of course is something we eventually need to do, uh, we can first connect over these shared values Things that he tackles in the book like equality and compassion and freedom. And over time, we seek to show how these things are grounded in a Christian vision of the world. So this is something I'm still figuring out as I do college ministry at UAB. But I found these two books to be really helpful. So if you're interested, highly encourage them. Uh, The authors are just thinking through some things in some really helpful ways. But conversations aren't the only important piece of the puzzle. So is community. Community is the context in which we want these conversations to be taking place. I've heard different people say this with slightly different numbers, but it's been attributed to Tim Keller. I didn't go track it down, but it sounds good. They say that on average, it takes three years of genuine searching and questioning and 15 or more relationships With believers for a person to move from skepticism to saving faith. So, of course, God can work more quickly than that. He is who He is. But on average, what we're seeing is three years and 15 or so relationships with believers. I think what this means is that people need to find belonging as they figure out what they believe. So, community is huge. And here's just a few final encouragements I wanted to leave with you as you think about the relational opportunities with non-Christians that the Lord has laid before you. First thing is just embrace the long game. Get to know non-Christians and really enjoy the friendships that you develop with them. Ask them good questions. Get to know their story. Learn what they've gone through. And slowly go deeper with them over time. Build that bridge. Make it nice and sturdy. And pray for wisdom to know when and how to steer conversations toward Jesus and the gospel. Second thing is just don't be afraid to acknowledge your limitations or lack of knowledge. If you get into a good conversation with someone and you don't know how to answer a specific question, that is totally fine. I think you can actually use that as an opportunity to invite them to dig into it with you. I think the Lord will be pleased to use that sort of thing in incredible ways. And lastly, which I've already kind of touched on, is just don't underestimate the power of community. Good conversations are necessary, of course. We can't share the gospel without words. It's a message that has content that must be believed. But even as we seek to declare the gospel message with our lips, we must also display the gospel's power with our lives together. And when there's that alignment between what we declare with our lips and what we display with our lives which only God can help us with, I think then our witness will be winsome. It'll be more compelling to the watching world. There are so many stories out there, beautiful stories of people coming to trust and love Jesus because they were first welcomed and loved by God's people. May God give us lots and lots of stories like that here at Red Mountain. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for... Your word, thank you for the instruction you give to us in it. Thank you for the gospel, Lord. We are sinners who deserve nothing good from your hands, but because of who you are, you chased after us in Jesus, did everything necessary to bring us back to you, and now you call us to be spreaders of that message here on earth. And Lord, I pray that in our circles of influence, you would give us wisdom to know how to have conversations with people and pray that you would bless our efforts to grow in this area where we all feel weak and it's all a struggle. But Lord, we we trust you that you will help us and just thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.